Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we are grateful for your mercies to us. We are grateful for these men who thousands of years ago walked in the same faith we walk in. We'd ask that we would be warned by them. In your son's name, amen. We finished Galatians last week. Went through a, a whole series on Galatians, which is up online under Big, not Big House, but uh, All Souls Sermons on the SoundCloud. And so here I was after weeks, maybe seven weeks, knowing exactly what I was going to preach on and able just to you know, shuffle my way with my cup of coffee down the stairs in the morning, knowing perfectly well I didn't have to look for a passage. But yea, verily, this Sunday I did. I had to actually think about things. I ended up in Titus. And there it is. You say, well, yeah, there it is, Titus. Titus, interestingly enough, coming right after Galatians in our experience, but not in time, Galatians is considered to be one of the first books written, if not the first book written, of the New Testament. Might have even preceded the Gospels. So they consider that it was early in Paul's ministry. And some people, because whenever they come up with anything, it's how could we... There's a basic uh, theme. You go to seminary, which I didn't, and you uh, go to a class that's called Getting Around St. Paul, because most people really want to get around St. Paul. They do not like things he says. And so anytime you could find something out about him, like Galatians, which, as we noted, was a little rough around the edges, a little, uh, a little out of control, a little you stupids sort of quality, so he was young. He was new in the faith. You know how when you became a Christian, you were telling everybody off, arguing with atheists, telling your parents that they got to go to a real church or something, you know, making friends, influencing people. And so people think that about Paul, that Galatians was just sort of his unformed or you know, unrefined, not sophisticated, didn't know how to get along. Titus is right before his last imprisonment, during which he was killed. After the book of Acts, it is written, the Timothys and the Titus, and Titus, uh, First Timothy and Titus are probably written about the same time, and then Second Timothy in prison afterwards. And uh, it's right before he dies. And I want you to look at what the problem he's addressing, and coming after Galatians, which our circumstance is, the new covenant is a covenant of faith and love by which the righteousness of God is ministered to us and we live in it, not because of law. And there are always people chasing down the church, trying to turn it into Judaism plus Jesus. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised ages ago and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by command of God our Savior. That's the introduction. I broke it up like that, centered it, because sometimes each of the phrases needs to be seen 
going by you. Look what he's about as an apostle. He's there to further your faith and further your knowledge. Not just knowledge, not just saying, well, then I'm going to college. It's not knowledge is good. Knowledge of the truth is good. Knowledge of which truth? The truth that accords with godliness. You've heard me say before, because I've heard it from my father many times, how is this heaven? Or number two son, how is this making you more like the Lord Jesus? We have all sorts of truths that don't make you more like the Lord Jesus. Some of them are even Bible truths that don't make you more like the Lord Jesus. Our faith is to be furthered by Paul, our knowledge of the truth that accords with godliness, and it lives inside a hope of eternal life. It's in a hope, in hope of eternal life. A promise of the future. We know, we've said it before, the gospel is here for, for the forgiveness of sins and life eternal. And it's not being said that, that you could have that as almost a catechized response. Forgiveness of sins and life eternal. The hope of glory, life eternal, is a place that you have to... Um, have considered out in your mind. Not just said, okay, yeah, since it's not here, I'm not going to think about it that much. Our hope, this is not a hope that is, a, you might say, an eschatological mania that you're making charts all the time of Ezekiel, um, but it's the state of anticipation. You always know. You always know what if you were in a state of, you know, financial tightness? Some of us are in that situation regularly. And you knew that you were going to get a check. There was a check in the mail. That all your bills were going to be paid. You knew it was in the mail. There was no doubt in your mind that it was in the mail. But sometimes, because the check in the mail, the end of the world, the beginning of glory doesn't come, just like with the check didn't come the next day. Was it, in the, was it in the mail slot, dear? No, no, the check wasn't here. But we really believe that the check is coming. So your view of your hope, your anticipation, because look what he says, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, he's letting us know that we're in a state where our hope is resting on a God who doesn't lie. He's an honest God. Do you believe that he's honest? You start to wonder what could go wrong with the mail service, or did so-and-so forget? When you're in Christian work, it happens pretty regularly. Someone says, oh, we're going to, you know, win us. It never, you know, doesn't always never happen, but it frequently doesn't happen. Someone says they're going to do something and doesn't do it, doesn't send it. But God, he never lies. And he promised ages ago, and at the proper time manifested in his word, 
It's still a hope. It was prophesied, and then Christ was brought, and the message of Christ was preached, and entrusted to St. Paul, where God commanded him to go out preaching this message of this hope. This message, look at that. Hope, faith, knowledge, are the things that Paul as an apostle is about. Now, as I mentioned to you regarding Galatians, it's about this, at least initially, this problem. Uh, in, at the other end of his ministry, it's still the same problem. With still the same level of, a little later in this chapter, verse 13, therefore rebuke them sharply. You know, sometimes, uh, the, you know, you, you modern young Christians, you think that the old Christians really, they're always fighting between denominations and they're always getting into, well, that shows they just don't understand Christian unity. And you think that everything, you're sort of like the Neville Chamberlains of Christianity, you're going to give away everything, every doctrinal ground to stand on for the sake of the peace of the church. You want to have a lesbian Eskimo as your pastor? You can. Because we don't want to, you know, we don't want to. You can't, by the way, have a lesbian Eskimo as your pastor. We don't think there should be a sharp answer for anything. A little later in the book, it says, Declare these things, exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. A little later in the book, it also says, I desire you insist on these things. Sometimes, some things that have to do with faith in God, the knowledge of the truth that accords with godliness, resting in the hope of God that is manifest in Christ, if you don't understand what Christianity is about, you're going to get yourself into a lot of trouble. But when that trouble comes, and you might bring it, or someone else might bring it into the church, something has to be done. And that's why he wrote the book. He is an apostle to do the things we just listed in this. You know, faith, knowledge, hope, entrusted, commanded. That's why he's an apostle. Titus exists, verse 4, to Titus, my true child in the common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why, verse 5, I left you in Crete that you might amend what was defective. There's, an, there's a task to Titus that has to do with the island of Crete. You don't know your Middle East or your Mediterranean. It's that long skinny island sort of between Turkey and Syria. Out in the Mediterranean, the, it's a little further west than that. It's like Cuba to Florida, it's like it's off the coast of southern Greece, the Peloponnese. Okay, you have it pictured in your mind. There's Bibles, the pictures in the back of your Bible. See, if we had an overhead projector, like some churches, I could put a, like a map up. Don't do it. Don't buy me one for Christmas. He's in Crete. He's been left there by Paul, who is traveling towards, up through Ephesus, up through Troas, up through Macedonia. He gets arrested up there and then goes to Rome. There is a, uh, he's always looking back at where he left Titus. 
But he's leaving him there to do something in particular. His general ministry is further the faith, further the knowledge, in the hope that he was commanded to do, that Christ brought, that God made manifest in Christ. That was the declaration that Paul was about. But Titus, he's there to fix a certain problem, that you might amend what was defective and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now this is where you go. Now this in the passage in 1 Timothy. <coughs> Churches that want to be biblical, <coughs> but still are sort of, uh, you want to be biblical, but you always are, end up turning Bible passages into portions of a book of church order. Because you think, you really wish the Bible was written, one is a theology text and a book of church order. Because all of our fights are about theology and how to run the church. But the Bible isn't a book of church order. A book of church order is a governing document of how you deal with things in your particular church. We do not have one. Okay? Got it? If you misbehave, we'll just make it up on the spot. Okay, we will trust that we are doing it biblically and we will toss your sorry rear end out into the cold if you are unrepentantly a thief. We'll just say thief because I hope none of you are. But we don't have a book of how to go about it. Nor do we have a list of things that you ought to believe other than what you've heard falling from my lips. We want you to discuss the word. We want you to understand the word. We want you to know what God is leading you to believe. But people, this was a, a circumstance in Crete that there didn't seem to be elders. I was talking to some believers, and my father the other night when he was over, and we were both in the same position. If you started a church, say you moved to North Dakota to work in the oil fields and to make a boatload of money, and you wanted to start a fellowship, but nobody was qualified to be a pastor and you couldn't afford one, you could still be a church. These were churches already. They just didn't have leadership. They didn't have elders. Far better that you not have pastors and still meet, read the scriptures, sing hymns, etc. Far better than appoint somebody who's not qualified. All right? That's just one. So if you move away and say, hey, I wish I had to start a church. Oh, you know, I'm not ready to be a pastor. Fine, don't have a pastor. Get together, serve the Lord's Supper, sing hymns, buy yourself some hymn books. You can get them online. Read your Bibles to each other. Talk about the Word. But this church in Crete obviously didn't have pastors yet because Titus is there to appoint some. You say, oh, but it's clear that something's defective. Well, that is the danger of not having bishops, the same idea, uh, presbyter here, bishop in Timothy, uh, episcopos, um, same, same office. Some people will look at this as, oh, here's a great, a list, a list I could do as a checkoff if we were to appoint elders in this church. This is what we would follow. Isn't it true? Evan, you would follow this? Yes, we would. We would want you, and I would like any of you men out there to consider. Does that, does that sound like you, that list? But that's not why it's in Titus particularly. Not because it is 
The, the, the defective thing, he is answering with the appointment of the bishops. You're going to see why in a moment. Look at what a bishop says. I'm going to appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If any man is blameless, just like that kind of qualification, uh, blameless. That's all. That is all. Enjoy your afternoon. Blameless. What does it mean? Well, first, look at how it, it says, if any man is blameless, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of being profligate or insubordinate. It is not blameless category, you know, that thing, and then how many wives do you get? Just one. How many disobedient children do you are allowed to have as a pastor? None. That's not, you're not having a, no, those are all applications, but that's the nature of this blamelessness. Blamelessness is your standing to the world. Are you reproachable? When people say bad things about you, does it resonate as true? And what is the standard, standard objection to famous pastors? They got rotten kids. They got rotten marriages. Doesn't matter. I still see Charles Stanley on the TV. I want to throw a brick through him. He's a great preacher. He's got that southern cadence going on, floppy Bible. Mine, well, it's like a brick. His wife left him. Man's not blameless. I don't care if it was her fault. He couldn't pastor one woman. His kid left his ministry out of his father's unwillingness to do anything about it. Because his father had always promised to step down if anything went wrong in his marriage. And then it went wrong, and he didn't. Too much power. Popularity. People still watched his TV show. People still sent gifts in. What are you going to do? What is the worst thing? Worst kid in town? It's always the pastor's kid. Worst kid in the church? Always the missionary kid. It's always the worst kid. But it says they have to be blameless. Their kids cannot be insubordinate or profligate. Well, that's true of any of your kids. You're not allowed to have insubordinate or profligate kids. It means you don't know how to do Christianity very well. And bishops, presbyters, need to be able to do Christianity well because they are supposed to be blameless. How their marriage is and how their kids are. Don't even think about putting yourself forward as a bishop to be considered. If your marriage isn't, you don't say, well, I only have one. It's not quantities. For a bishop as God's steward, must be blameless. He keeps using that word. He said, blameless in his family. That was the first category. That people shouldn't look at how he lives. Well, how many pastors have you heard of on the news? Ran off with some person of the same gender they were of. Ted Haggard, I think, down in Colorado, or 
or all sorts of awful situations. You're always hearing about them with famous pastors. Because nobody's paying attention to what Titus was told to do. For the bishop, as God's steward, must be blameless. Now it talks not about his family, but who he is. He must not be arrogant, or quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain. Again, all things that your public soul is how it's evident. Your disobedient kids and your rotten marriage is evident to people outside. And it will cause reproach. If you're reproachable, that means people have seen something in you. But in you particularly, personally, there are certain negative things that occur all the time in bishops. And for those of you who are new to this kind of casual Christian religion that we're espoused by All Souls Christian, we say bishop like some people would say pastor. It's the Bible word, episkopos, for an elder of the church. There's presbyter, bishop, elder, pastor. You know, all are synonymous. We're not talking about the guys with the funny hats. Gold-encrusted funny hats. Because gold-encrusted funny hats seems like they are greedy for gain. Or perhaps even arrogant. When you have to walk in and kiss their ring. Have you ever had to kiss my ring? <laughs> Willing to consider it if you guys want to vote on that. Um... No, just talk to me afterwards if you. Arrogant, quick tempered. I knew a pastor who was always losing his temper at people who disagreed with him. That's all I have. I'm just happy to have you here. Warm bodies who disagree with me. Drunkards. I've known those sorts. Knew an Episcopal priest who was just a complete lush. Or violent? Mm, I don't know if I've known a violent minister. Oh! <laughs> For Santa Claus, St. Nicholas. Somebody had a thing on Facebook, a friend of mine put it up. St. Nicholas, who gave gifts to children and punched heretics. <laughs> supposedly, supposedly, St. Nicholas, the actual one, just nailed, you know, uh, Arius in the chops. Okay, Arius was a heretic who believed in the sort of Jehovah's Witness sort of thing. Uh, Jesus Christ wasn't God, fully equal, fully eternal. And things were running a little tight. And supposedly St. Nicholas couldn't control himself and smacked him. <laughs> and this Christian who had this little picture of Nicholas and that little, you know, internet meme thing, you know, I really like this. Yeah, I said, you know, just like Jesus commanded it. Oh, wait, no, he didn't. Tell us to go smack heretics in the face. It's a bad and non-Christian thing to do. Okay? Just to have that. Oh, but I really want to hit somebody. Not violent. Not greedy for gain. Because religion, folks, religion is a great job, okay? 
lots of power, people admire you, you wear the clerical collar, people nod you on the street, people call you pastor, people just give you money. You just put a little box out front and they put money in it. And what kind of life is that? If you had that in your house, a little box down front, every time you had your friends over, you passed a plate around, and everybody just knew that you pull out their wallet and throw ten bucks in. Okay? That's what the box out there for, but or twenty. I don't have anything. Um, but you could, you could. What a great job. All you have to do is keep people convinced that they need you to go to heaven. And they will give you money to make themselves feel that. You pay the insurance companies, and this is a different kind of insurance. But if you were that way, you wouldn't be blameless. That's what non-believers look at the church, and they see people like this in the church that we don't do anything about, or we don't hold ourselves away from, and they go, um, that's just what the church is like. Don't be that way. You don't have to be in that kind of circumstance. And then on the positive side, that's the negative. Blameless, not doing these things, Blameless doing these things. Verse 8. But hospitable, a lover of goodness, master of himself, upright, holy, and self-controlled. It's almost like the Christian history was marked by people who offered themselves because the religious life is an easy life. offered themselves, and we just took what was offered, people who applied, because we felt we got to have one, got to have a priest, got to have a minister. No, you don't. Now, there's a benefit to it, and this is where the benefit comes in, and this is why I think that he said, amend what is defective and appoint elders is the same thing. Because he says, he must hold firm, verse 9, to the sure word is taught. The people you bring up for bishop are not just people who are established in the community who love Jesus and who think nonsense. They need to hold firm to the sure word. They need to know what Christianity is. So that they may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to confute those who contradict it. Now, this is why I think amend what is defective by appointing bishops. Of this sort of person, a blameless person, a person that nobody can say you're just out for your own good or your own power. You say, no, I'm not here for the money. I'm not here for the power. My kids and my wife know what sort of person I am. You cannot reproach what I do. And you, sir, need to be tossed out of the street because you're disturbing the household of faith. He says, they have to be able to confute those who contradict sound doctrine. For, verse 10, there are many insubordinate men. When you have a church that doesn't have leadership, there is always some, what was the one, one denomination uh, fondly referred to as those from those within it, as the church of 10,000 theologians. Because every man in that church thinks he's a theologian. 
That's the danger of, my father always regretted teaching us to read the scriptures because my brother and I did and it caused no end of torment. But people do put themselves forward who are not qualified. The reason you look for an irreproachable, a blameless, qualified bishop is that they could do the smackdown on those who are not qualified and don't hold to the sure word. They would confute those who contradict because there are insubordinate men, men who don't listen, empty talkers and deceivers. And this is where the evidence comes in that the Galatians thing at the beginning of his ministry was not just youthful Paul getting out of control, especially the circumcision party. That's precisely who he was fighting in Galatians. The circumcision party. Those especially are those, they must be silenced. You've got to get them to shut up. But the only way you can get them to shut up is to put people forward, appoint people, Titus, whose lives are irreproachable and who understand what the Christian life is supposed to be. That it's not lived by the law. If they don't understand this, you're not getting what Paul wanted to get. It's not just that, oh, if we're going to have a bishop, we've got to go through this checkoff list and Timothy and Titus and make sure that they have all these. There's a reason for this. The reason is we've got bad doctrine in the church. Now, let's, let's be honest. This tactic in Crete by Paul didn't work. It should have, it could have, didn't. Because for 2,000 years, the church has been pushing forward a legal observance of morality. They weren't silencing those who contradicted the true doctrine. The upsetting they did, since they are upsetting whole families, by teaching for base gain what they have no right to teach. Some groups managed to. Some groups stepped away from the, the hoorah that was going on in Christendom and hid themselves away and did what God commanded. God bless them. You'll get to know those people in glory. But it has to be done. It has to be, continue to be done. They have to be silenced because anyone who steps forward with the law in the church is an empty talker. They're insubordinate. It's an awful thing. Say, Evan, could you be a little more strong about that? Well, yes, I could, but I'm not allowed to swear. I've come close. They must be silenced. One of themselves, verse 12, a prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. That's racially insensitive. What if you said that about, I don't care, what's a group we could pick on? The Irish. The, when I grew up, you just told Polak jokes, right? Anybody pull Polak here? Okay, we're safe. Or the French, I don't care. If you said anything like that, people get into trouble on the news all the time for saying something 
as insensitive as this. Luckily, a Cretan said it, which creates the, 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 um, the paradox of Epimenides, because that's who said it. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. It comes from his Critica, which I have the, the section here on the side. They fashioned a tomb for you, holy and high one. Cretans, always liars, evil beasts, idle bellies. But you are not dead. You live and abide forever. For in you, we live and move and have our being. Oh, where did that come? I thought that was Bible. Well, that's where Paul's quoting him again in Acts. Paul seemed to know this guy. He was a Cretan prophet. Epimenides from about the 6th and 7th century. We're not quite sure. Supposedly had a real long lifespan. He, miracle worker, did all sorts of stuff. They had him to Athens to... Um, to atone for the sins of the followers of, uh, never mind. But it comes up twice in the scriptures, quoting this guy. And he says, these people, the point being, not that he was quoting Epimenides, the point was being that there are people out there whose desire to feed their basic human urges or as the King James version calls it, instead of lazy gluttons, I think it's called slow bellies in the King James, which is like, what? You know, some modern go slow belly? Idle bellies. People who know that they can get a following. People who are not really interested in just having a theology that's wrong and living by it. Because if you have a wrong theology, let me be frank with you, have it affect you first. If you have some theology different than mine, or the same as mine, live by it. Show that it has the effect of making your wife happy and your kids respectful, not insubordinate. Show that it has that effect. Live it the rest of your days. Don't tell anyone about it. But no, we're not really about that. We really want to tell other people. We want to make sure that somebody else is on our side and that they will reverence us as their teacher. I have some views I'd love to tell you about. I'd love to have you follow me. The Eventine Order. We could wear, you know, special robes. And I don't leave eyes. We look like homeschool moms, but we would, we would be. We could probably get deals on them out there. We. These are people who want to have the benefit come to them from having people trust them. You should be trusting Jesus Christ. Your walk should base be based primarily and how you have settled your ash with Him. And then you go find believers that you enjoy being with, gather together with them, and praise your Lord. And we should get bishops to protect us, to fight these fights, to stop these crazy talkers who are serving their own lusts, human lusts, of having a following. Because the following... is what evil beasts and lazy gluttons want. 
if I could only convince you to buy what I'm selling. But the Christian who serves Jesus Christ doesn't really concern himself with the business success of what he's doing. You've heard me say before, as Solomon said before, the wise man is wise for himself. Prove that what you have learned in Christ has changed your life. Understand it. Don't be moved to try to, even if people really like what you have to say, watch out for that slow belly, that desire to have people just give you. People, people give Leslie and myself money for our ministry. We're very grateful. But there's one of the things that Paul was really strong about that people who are in the work should show that they really care about the work by working. Providing for their own needs to whatever degree they can. Because there's a protection against the people like the Cretans, liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. They just need to be rebuked. They just need to be told to back off, don't sell fake religion to the believers. The testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Instead of giving heed to Jewish myths or to the commands of men who reject the truth. Oh, but Jewish myths, they're so cool. If you have a friend who is caught up in these things, silence them. Let them know this is inappropriate. It's for their being sound in the faith. It's not just to create a fight. I'm not just saying, I want to prove you wrong and me right. I want to prove you wrong to you so that you would be sound in the faith. This is crucial. To the pure, all things are pure. Meditate on that at home today or at the college student dinner in the library afterwards. What does that mean? To the pure? All things are pure. All things are lawful. What are you going to do with that? I don't feel comfortable saying things like that. What do you mean? All things are pure. But to the corrupt and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Got it? Corrupt and unbelieving. Not because they want to be pure, but because they're selling lawful purity. And so they view everything from playing cards to dancing. Depends on what church you're in. Whether you're Hebrew, banning sausage, or whatever it is. Their very minds and consciences are corrupted. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their deeds. That kind of Christian life is not holy. You perhaps think it is because you've been trained by many books and studying medieval times when St. Francis the Sissy is walking around with, you know, robes and talking to butterflies. And so you think, because you're Gnostic, that you think that denial and sacrifice and everything being corrupt is a pious place to be. 
They profess to know God, but they deny, them by their, deny him by their deeds. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good deed. That's what you have to, when you say all things are pure, we are preparing ourselves for holiness. This is not a path to antinomian license. This is a path to actual holiness that the law could never get you to. You've got to shut people up who try to sell the church on keeping the rules. We need to be able to say, do you know Jesus Christ? Have all things been made pure to you? Do you understand what it is to detest this? Because it strips you of real righteousness. And the real path to righteousness. We've got to have people in the church, like bishops, who understand, whose own lives, first off, whose own lives are irreproachable. If you want to step this direction, if you want to be a benefit to the church long term, this is where you must go first. Your children, your wife, your attitudes, good and bad. That's what you got to get worked out. Because there's a fight that has to be fought. Believe me, we're losing it in terms of Christendom. But the people that are right, the people that are holy, the people that are following this faith, this knowledge of God, with a mind towards godliness, they know that this is the path you have to take. You're unfit for good deeds if you follow the law. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we are very grateful that Paul held firm to the sure word throughout his ministry. We know this is sometimes a hard thing to understand. It's a great mystery that has been given us in faith. It points us by freeing us to godliness, things that would please you, and that we can be at peace with because we have been changed. Lord, keep us away from the portions of the Christian religion that are just dancing on the theology or on the morality and the structure of their churches but are not holding fast against these things. Help us be kind to them, but also definite. In your son's name, amen.